Hello, and welcome to our weekly message. In today's message, Pastor Luke continues our summer sermon series called The Mountains Are Calling. This week's message is titled The God Who Answers with Fire, from 1 Kings 18, verses 16 through 40. Hello, Harvest family. I am blessed to be able to speak to you today. If you don't know who I am, I am the youth pastor. I'm Pastor Luke. Uh, It's always fun when they let the youth pastors speak, hey? We have been going uh, through a series this summer called The Mountains Are Calling, where we're talking about significant events in the Bible where God is glorified on a mountain. And uh, before I begin, I want to share what I think was a miracle that I experienced last summer. It wasn't on a mountain, it was on a lake around a bunch of mountains, but I I think it it fits. So some of you guys know me, I'm a little bit nutty about fishing. I, I talk about it all the time, I go out every chance I get. I have like fishing goals, like I'm just way too deep into it. And so last summer I was invited to a wedding in interior BC and I thought what a great opportunity to squeak in a a short little fishing trip in some of the the lakes in southern BC. So I went, if you guys remember last summer it was like scorching hot, especially there. It was getting like above 40 degrees some days, like it was was ridiculous but I'm, I'm dedicated to catching fish. So uh, I talked to some locals there, and they told me about this lake, this very like backroads lake, where you can catch largemouth bass, like big ones, five pounders. So if you fish at all in Alberta, you know that we don't have any of those here. So one of my, my fishing goals was to catch a big largemouth bass, and I'm like, I'm stoked. I'm like, I'm in. I'm going. And uh, so I go to this lake, and it was a crazy hot day. So I went in the evening. It started to cool down. It was only like. 35 degrees at that point. Um, and this lake, I drove on this crazy long back road uh, to get there. No one was around. And there's no boats on this lake. I guess there's no motors allowed, so people just don't go there. And, uh, and so I was, I was the only one in this huge lake. And so I get my boat in the water. It's this little like tin boat, and I had to, to row the thing. It's a rowboat. And so I get on the water, and I remember right as I was getting in the water, I'm like, wow, these mosquitoes are really bad. But I was excited to get away from the shore so I could go fishing and there'd be less mosquitoes. So I did, and I caught one fish, but it was a good one. It was like a decent, probably a three-pounder bass. And I was like, I was stoked. I was over the moon. I, I accomplished my goal. But it's starting to get dark. There's this beautiful sunset. I'm like, I'm going to coast back in, get out of here. And so as I'm getting back to shore, the mosquitoes are just like horrendous, like nothing I've ever experienced, right? You know, like, you know that feeling where you're just itchy and they're all over and... And so it was like still 30-something degrees out, but I put a sweater on, I put gloves on, I put the hood up and like cinched it, and I'm just rowing this boat, sweating like crazy. And I get back to my truck, I load it, my boat into the back of my truck as fast as I can, and I get everything in there, I just have to tie it down, but I just needed a break because I was so hot, the mosquitoes were just driving me up the wall. I, get, I go take a break in my, my truck, collect myself, calm down, I'm like, okay, I just got to go put a ratchet strap on it, and then I'm out of here, probably never going to come back. And so I go out, go to the boat, strap it down. I'm like running at this point, frantically, like, you know, tying the thing down. And I go back to my truck and I pull on the handle and it doesn't open. And I'm like, no way. So I go to the other door, I pull on the handle, doesn't open. And at this point, you know, panic starts to set in. I look in the truck and I see my key ignition on, the headlights are on, the sun's going down, and I'm like, this is not good. And, uh, so, like I think most people would do, I, uh, I, I shouted. I was mad. <laughs> I was not a happy camper at that point. 
And I started to devise a plan. So my plan, I, I found some of my tools and my fishing gear. And I started to try and pry the door of my truck open with like this pair of pliers. And I found these sticks that I kind of whittled down and I was jamming them in the door to try and like hit the latch. And after two hours of that and about a dozen sticks snapped in the process, I was, I was done. And in a moment of desperation, I, I prayed to God. I was like, God, I know you've done amazing things. You've done way more amazing things than this. Can you please let me into my truck so I can get out of here? I had about a thousand mosquito bites at that point. And I felt this voice telling me, just go try the handle one more time. And believe me when I say I've probably yanked on that handle about a thousand times. I was about to smash a window. I, I, I just felt, just go try the handle one more time. So I did. And the thing opened. Unbelievable, right? And in a moment of insane relief, I thought to myself, why didn't I just pray sooner? And so today, uh, I want to talk to you about uh, a mountain, Mount Carmel, and this prophet named Elijah of Israel. who uh, He was a prophet of the wilderness, and I am sure he would understand my hatred of mosquitoes <laughs> a little bit. So uh, to set the scene before we get into this story, um, we understand that the nation of Israel was divided at this point. So there's the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And what had happened was King Solomon, one of David's sons, uh, he was the last king of a, a unified Israel. He was a, a very corrupt king, very wise, but very corrupt. His character did not match his wisdom. And so what happened was he had implemented very... Uh, improper taxes on his people and improper forced labor so that he could build a huge palace and a huge temple and amass a huge amount of wealth, um, but at the expense of his own people. And they were not happy with this man. And so uh, they called him out on it. In Deuteronomy 17, there's a list of laws for kings of Israel. And when you read through it, it, it becomes apparent that Solomon has broken every single one of those rules. And so Solomon was about to pass on and his son Rehoboam was going to be the new king, and he was going to be worse than Solomon. And so this man named Jeroboam, who is not related to Rehoboam, that tripped me up in Bible school a lot, he split the nation. They decided uh, they didn't want to be a part of this kingdom of Israel that was Im improperly and unjustly oppressing their people. So they split. And so 10 tribes went with Jeroboam to the north to, to, to be Israel, and then the kingdom of Judah under Rehoboam was in the south, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And so this brings us to where we are, uh, to King Ahab. He was the 17th king of increasingly more wicked kings of Israel, the northern kingdom. Um, he, the, the text says that he was the most wicked king yet. He was worse, and he'd done more to anger the Lord than any of the kings had previously. He had a, a queen named Jezebel. Uh, she was not an Israelite. She was a Phoenician woman. And her goal was to eliminate any resemblance of God's people in Israel. He wanted them to become completely godless. So they were executing the prophets of God, tearing down the altars of God, and replacing them with uh, altars and statues and worship practices of the cults of Baal, of a false god from a false land. And so that brings us to where we are today, or in this story. Um, so now comes Elijah. He's a man of the wilderness. He, he really has no part of that mess going on in the popular cities in Israel. Um, and he's a man who is 
marked by faith and obedience to God. Uh, he's already done several powerful works in the name of God through God's power. He was fed and survived by ravens who brought him meat and bread at one point. He, uh, he had visited a widow and created endless supplies of wheat and flour in her jars so that she could survive. Um, and she revived his son who died, who in Hebrew tradition was known to be the prophet Jonah. Um, so he's already done amazing things. And he's approached Ahab, King Ahab, and told him about the wickedness, the, the evil of what he's doing, and warned him. And this, he, so he warned them that this has brought a drought on the land of Israel. So they're experiencing a major drought. And this brings us to the story that we're in today. So if you have your Bibles, flip with me to 1 Kings 18. And we're going to look at verses 60 to 40 today. Um, so verses 16 says this. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's name have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent the words throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and he said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. How long will you waver? In that question, Elijah called out an entire nation. It gripped the hearts of every person there. How long will you waver? And they couldn't answer. They didn't answer. They couldn't answer because Elijah had done something for them that they had neglected to do for decades. He confronted the true desires of their hearts with that question. So Elijah, he was a man on the outside of it all. He, he wasn't politically involved. He didn't have strong uh, opinions about celebrities or influencers or government policy or he was outside of all that. Instead, he was constantly and directly spoke with the Father. He had a perspective from God in heaven about Israel that they couldn't see themselves. And so he saw that these were supposed to be God's chosen people. These are supposed to be people who were in a covenantal relationship with Yahweh, the God who had delivered them from Egypt, who had parted seas for them, who had given them the promised land, who had raised up priests and kings to lead them. And now he saw that they unashamedly broke the principal commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. They were brazen in their affair with Baal. And Elijah, he confronted their wandering hearts something that I think every believer should do regularly. So A.B. Simpson, he is the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance. Um, and he said something amazing in one of his texts. It says that every believer experiences what we call a crisis of sanctification. So this is when, uh, every, in the life of every believer, we're confronted with a God-sized problem, and we choose to either turn to the Lord and trust him to see us through it, or we turn away from the Lord. And these experiences, there's often several of these experiences in our lives. 
they are catalysts that either create immense spiritual growth and increase surrender, or they lead us away from God. And so in this case, Elijah, he created this crisis in the hearts of every Israelite here. How long will you waver? And there's a battle in the heart of every human. There's a battle to follow God in righteousness or to follow our fleshly desires and surrender to idolatry and passion. Elijah challenges people to think it through to the end. You can follow the God in heaven who has led you up to where you are now and will continue to lead you, who wants to establish great things through you, who wants to make you into a great nation, who wants to build the kingdom of heaven through you now in your lifetime. Or you can follow Baal. You can worship a God who allows you to indulge in any, any act, any sexual act, any financial exploitation, anything that you want. And where will that take you? What is the end? And when he talks about this, he, he, he knows that it was a very uh, unjust time, one of the worst times in the history of Israel at that point. And it's not too much unlike today. We say oftentimes that we live in a post-Christian society. This, we could say, was a, becoming a post-Yahweh society. There was very few followers of God. And there was no one who stood on this mountain with Elijah for God's sake. In Matthew 6.24, Jesus says, You cannot worship two masters. You can't worship God in Baal, or God in money, or God in career, or God in your ambitions, or God in your family. Anything you worship other than God is an idol. And later in that verse, Jesus says, whatever master that you love, you'll start to despise the other. You can't have two wives or two husbands and love them both equally and devote yourself to each of them. You can't uh, play in the NBA and the MLB. Michael Jordan tried, and even he couldn't do it. Elijah's question, it causes us to stop and think, what is battling for your heart? So in verses 22 to 24, it says this. Then Elijah said to them, I am the one, only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us, let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. Then you call the name of your God and I'll call the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. And so this is a cool scene. Cowboy Elijah, he's set up a duel right here. A duel at sundown and the whole town is watching in suspense. I picture God saying something like, this town ain't big enough for the both of us. And there's like a tumbleweed that rolls by. And he's, you know, picture God staring at this, you know, image, this statue of a cow. I mean, as the reader, we already know what's going to happen. But I think it's this funny thing that Elijah set up. And as the story goes, the prophets of Baal, they go first. They prepare their altar and they start uh, worshiping Baal in their Baal-worshiping ways. Um, and in my research, there was a lot of obscene things that they did to worship Baal. Pretty much any fleshly desire was a worship of Baal, it seemed. Um, but in the text, it says that these 450 prophets were dancing and shouting and shrieking, and there was no response. And then they started 
maiming themselves and hurting themselves and slashing themselves with swords, and there was no response. And Elijah, he stood by witnessing. This was a full-day event. He watches them do this for hours, and he starts to call them out on how ridiculous this is. He starts to chirp them. He says things like, maybe you're not loud enough. Or, uh, you know, maybe he's busy, which we can easily translate into, well, maybe he's just in the bathroom. And Elijah, he really spoke what he thought, didn't he? Um, Now, Elijah's turn came, and he doubled down on his confidence in the Lord. He, He assembles the altar. He puts, he assembles the wood underneath the bull. He assembles 12 stones for each of the divided tribes of Israel under one altar. And then he tells one of his servants, go and uh, go soak the altar with water. Now, if you've ever tried to light a campfire out of like wet, soaked wood, it's just not going to happen, right? So he gets the servant to soak it. And then I imagine he just stands back over, the, you know, this mass of all of Israel and, and grins. And then he says, do it again. So they soak it a second time. And I, I imagine he just waits there a little bit longer, and he's like, yeah, and do it again. So they do it a third time, to the point where this, this altar is now in a puddle. There's a trench of water around it. This thing is completely drenched. In verses 36 to 39, they say this. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham... Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And so just like last week when we spoke about Abraham on Mount Moriah, and the Lord intervened to save Isaac at the very last moment, he comes through again. He sent a fire to consume the the soaked sacrifice all the soaked wood, the fire even consumed the stones and the soil and all of the water around the altar. In a duel between Yahweh and any other god or idol or pleasure, Yahweh always comes out on top. He makes it obvious how he is the better master. And to the wandering hearts of Israel, he patiently and he lovingly reminds them of his power and his might. And through the miraculous signs, he is the God who answered with fire. When we compare the prophets of Baal to Elijah, would anyone not want to be Elijah in this story? Would anyone choose the crowd of the 450 prophets who failed over the one man who stand up in faith with a God who is victorious? These prophets, they devoted their lives to Baal. They devoted their lives to wickedness and cruel sacrifice and self-harm. And at the end of it all, there was nothing. It was all for nothing. No matter how hard they worshipped, no matter how much they sold themselves out to this cult, no matter how deep they cut themselves, 
there was no bail. He wasn't there. And in our lives, we face moments of decision between God and idols. To go in the direction God calls us or to turn away. And we learn from these prophets that this idolatry, it ends in our destruction. In the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon wrote that it is all hevel, which translates to like a vapor, or it's all vanity. This king, King Solomon, who had everything at the end of his life, he wrote that none of it mattered at all. None of the experiences, none of the many wives, or the huge amount of gold, or the temple, none of it mattered. The only thing that mattered was to know God. And it's a powerful book. And Elijah, in this scene, He's on God's victorious side. And it wasn't even a close duel, let's be honest. God wins. And Elijah, he can boast in Yahweh because Yahweh always wins. (laughs) There's a tragic history of Israel where they don't believe that. And God, he patiently returns to his people for their sake. He performs these miraculous signs over and over and over again to win back the hearts of his people because he loves them. They're his people. They're his children. And could there be anything better than a loving God who patiently accepts his children in forgiveness and grace when they wander from him? There's no end to the forgiveness of God. And this entire story of Israel is a loving father who guides his children back every single time. And so in the choice between God and any idol, God makes the choice clear for us, doesn't he? The Lord, he is God. And so as we conclude, I want us to ponder this question. What if we were people who didn't waver? What if we learned, and I've seen many of you live this out, that we can respond and say yes and amen to all of God's promises and everything he calls us to without hesitation, and it'll actually work out for us. What happens when we pray with expectant faith as soon as the car door won't open and you're locked outside in the wilderness for two hours with mosquitoes? (laughs) Or when you have a major life decision and you wrestle with it for months or years or when we feel tempted and we begin to feel our heart wandering away from what God has planned for us. James 5.17, it says that Elijah, he was a man like us. He was a human. And he prayed in expectant faith with extreme obedience and he became a force for the power of God. That verse says we are like Elijah. When we believe and we live in prayerful obedience, we experience the power of God in us, in our lives. We start to become like Elijah and Elisha and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And we start to become like the disciples, like Peter, like John, like James. Those were all humans just like us, and that's the life that God calls us to as his disciples. We can do the same things. Jesus says that, we will go on to do greater things than he because his spirit lives within us. And his spirit living in the lives of two billion believers on the earth today is an amazing power. 
And so his desire is for you to believe in the God who answers with fire, to light altars, to move mountains, to cast out demons, to establish churches, to create disciples, to baptize your family, your friends, to live a powerful life of service for the Lord. And he says, don't waver. Don't hesitate. The longer we hesitate, the more we miss out on what God has in store for us. A life of power, of grace, of righteousness, of purity. A life of adventure. Most importantly, we miss out on the intimacy and the closeness of a life with Jesus. A life that transforms us to be like him, to live in his image, to be the humans that we were meant to be. So let's keep our focus upwards, letting God give us perspective and direction like Elijah and live powerful lives of service for his glory. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the congregation. I thank you for the potential of amazing works to be done through these people and the things that you have done through them. Holy Spirit, I pray that you grip the hearts of this church today, that on an individual level you speak to them, what are you wavering about? What are you waiting for? God, I pray that your Holy Spirit speaks loudly and clear the things that we're called to, that we would step out in faith and boldness and obedience to follow your truth, your command, and to be your people. God, I thank you for your forgiveness in this story time and time again of how you have led your people through their own failures. And I pray that you would do that today. So God, let us be a church marked with grace and humility to confess and soaked in your forgiveness and glory. God, I pray this in your holy name. Amen. So now I want to leave you with this word from Philippians. It's Philippians 3.20. It says, Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enabled him to bring everyone under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Now go in peace. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for our weekly message. The longer we hesitate in stepping out in faith with God, the more we miss out on what he has for us. Our God loves us and longs for an intimate and life-giving relationship with each and every one of us. Step out in faith and experience the abundant life that Jesus longs for us all to experience. Draw near to God, and God will draw near to us. If you're experiencing challenges or hardships and would like prayer for anything going on in your life, please email us at help at hhachurch.com. That's help, H-E-L-P, at H for Harvest, H for Hills, A for Alliance, Church, C-H-U-R-C-H dot com, and we would love to talk with you, pray with you, and help you experience all that is available in Christ Jesus. Now these words from Romans 15, verse 13. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with the confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. May God bless you as you go into the remainder of your day to be the hands, feet, and voice of Jesus.